Amen. Uh, If you have your Bible with you, uh, please grab it and turn with me to Psalm 46. That's where we are picking it up here this morning. Uh, We've been jumping around the Psalms over the course of the summer, really just kind of bouncing all over the place. And there's, there's just one more uh, message in this series of the Psalms. We're going we're gonna to close it out next week with Psalm 95, and then after that, we are going to spend the rest of 2022 right up to Christmas. We're going to spend it in the book of James. And so here's what I'd ask you to do. I'd ask you to stand with me now as we look together, as we seek to hear uh, from the Lord to us uh, as His people this morning. Uh, this is Psalm 46, and I'm going to start there in verse 1. By the way, we've sung this psalm like we've sung it already in this service. A mighty fortress that our God is basically Psalm 46. We just re-sang Psalm 42, which seems remarkably similar. I think God's trying to tell us something. So here's Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is with us is our fortress. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, every one of us comes in here with something right now that's vying for our attention, that is trying to distract us. Lord, I pray that you just help us to be present. Help us to be still in a true sense. Let us be fully here with you this morning. I pray that for my own heart, my own distracted heart, Lord, help us to just be present and then help us to hear. Give us ears to hear, Lord. Give us eyes to see and awaken our souls that we might know you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we have, uh, as we've made our way through this sampling of the Psalms, we've touched on several themes over the course of the last couple months. And it's, it's been pretty consistent. There's been this consistent theme of God's glory. We've seen uh, that one to some degree in every in every psalm that, that God is that God is above everything that He has made. There's a there's a theme of human dependence that's run throughout all of these psalms, sort of recognizing that as created things, all right, that God is above us, that we are that we are here on the earth as created beings, that that we don't exist on our own, right? That that we're not islands unto ourselves, but that even that even apart from our need for redemption, like even more basic than that fundamental need for salvation, and just on a sort of like base level, we are just deeply needy creatures, right? I mean, like we, we are, we are dependent on something more specifically, we would say we are dependent on someone for 
for virtually everything. We, we've seen the theme of confidence in God, that he is present. So we've seen both his imminence, right? That he, or sorry, we've seen both his transcendence and that he's above everything. And then we've seen his imminence, that God is here present with us and that he is able. And then there's been a theme, sort of a thread running through it all, that, that God is worthy of our worship. And that God is actually worthy of what we're doing here right now. And, and Psalm 46, it is a psalm of worship. That, that's, that's what it is. It's a pilgrim song of worship. It's meant to be, it's meant to be sung. It's, it's meant to be declared to one another as, the, as what I would call the gathered choir of God's redeemed. And that's not some of us. Here's what we mean by that. I mean, if you look at the top, it literally says to the choir master. So this is meant to be sung. We've tried to sing it. Um, but it's meant for all of us to be singing, not a fraction of us, not just some of us. It's not like a set number of, of, of us who have a specific gifting or musical talent. It's not just for those who, who love to sing, whether they have talent or not. It's not just for those who happen to stand up here on a platform with a, with a microphone. It's for all of us. And so here's, here's what I can say, like with great confidence. I'm probably, I mean, I could say this every single week, but I'm saying it specifically today, that Psalm 46 is for you. Like, so this, this word of God is for you today, and that means that Psalm 46 is for all of the redeemed. And so wherever you're coming from, whatever your week has been, no matter what sort of baggage you brought in here with you this morning, we can be confident that, that God has something to say to us because Psalm 46 is for all of God's people. And one of the themes that runs through the Psalms, we see that, uh, we see some form of this word 45 times in the Psalm, in, the, in all of the Psalms. It's this theme, and we haven't really touched on this, but it's this theme of fear. Like fear. <laughs> And, and, and the Psalms deal with that. Psalm 46, even as a song of praise, deals with this theme of fear. It's the, it's the Hebrew word Yah-Reh. Uh, and, and fear, even though we try to avoid it, right? And, and we do. I, I've, I've confessed. I mean, I hate scary movies. I don't want anything that scares me. I mean, you put one on and I will leave the house. The room's not enough. I just leave entirely. I don't want to be near it. I don't want to hear it. Uh, I just, I can't, I can't do it. So if you ever invite me to a movie and it's scary, I'm out. I'll just tell you that I'm a coward, whatever. I'm not about it, all right? Um, but so fear is this thing that we try to avoid. It's this thing that we don't really want to talk about, that like we don't want to confess to one another, like, even though it's, it, it, like it's something that all of us have, and yet we don't want to share with each other. And we have all kinds of fears, right? We have fears of, of failure. We have fears of rejection. We have fears of being found out. We have fears of belonging. We have fears of commitment, which by the way is often just a camouflage fear of missing out. That's what, that's what that really is most of the time. And, and these are just like the dominant social fears that we have to deal with. And what Psalm 46 is going to say, here's what it's going to say. It's going to say that not only is fear not your enemy, not only is fear not your enemy, but that a right fear, a right fear makes all other fears seem insignificant. It shows us that even, here it is, that even if all of our fears are realized, the Lord still remains. 
All right, so look back at verse 1 with me. Here's what we read. It says that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And then we're given some instruction, all right? We're given some instruction there after three, uh, where we see that word Selah. Everybody see that? If you're following along in your Bible, you see this little word and there says Selah, S-E-L-A-H, which means this. It means to pause and reflect. That's an instruction that's given to us in, in, in many of the Psalms, to, to, to pause and reflect. It's telling us to slow down. Like it's telling us to settle, settle in and, and think about it before we just move on. And that's something that we, I mean, I'll be honest, I don't think that's something we do very well as a people, like we're really bad at just sitting still with the Lord. I mean, I have a good friend of mine. We've been confessing this to each other for months now. It's like, man, when can you just be present with God? We're, we're really bad at it. We're, we're always on the move, right? Always on the, goal, on the go. That fear of missing out, sort of compelling us and controlling us. That fear of not being enough or whatever, pushing us forward into more and more activity. I, I, here's, I find myself in that space more often than I want to admit to you. I find myself running the like classic rat race of life more than I want to admit. And so as I sit down with my Bible in the morning, like, I mean, just, in, you can, I'll welcome you into my house for just a second. In the morning, uh, we, we, we get Laurie and Logan leave a little earlier, all right? So we get them out of the house, kind of kind of get them out. And then, and then I sit and I've got this chair in, my, in the living room. It's, it's, like, it's my chair. I'm the only one who really sits in it most of the time. At night when we watch TV, I'm curled up in it like a ridiculous child. You would, you would find me just pathetic as can be. I'm like, I mean, they got the couch. They're just as comfortable as can be. Tucker's got the whole floor laid out and I'm over there in fetal position trying to watch a show, but whatever. That's, that's my chair. And so I'm stuck with it. And, and I've got a lamp right there beside us, you know, whatever, it's a lamp, and it's there. Uh, I've got my Bible. It's quiet. The dog is sitting on the couch. Like, this is a Norman Rockwell painting, like, vision of doing your quiet time, and I sit down, and, and, and I take out my Bible, and I pull out a pen. I'm, I'm, I'm that guy, man. I've always got a pen. I'm ready to go. I didn't use that as a prop intentionally, but that's, it's there all the time. Always have a pen ready to write something down. It's like the perfect environment. Oh, it's conditioned air, right? Like I'm not out in the woods, like trying. There's not mosquitoes after me. It's the perfect environment to be alone with God. And almost immediately, when I sit down, my mind drifts to a thousand other things that I could be doing. Anybody relate to that? Okay. My mind drifts into all the other things. Here's what it is, really: is my mind drifts to the things that the day might hold. Like it's what, it, what might happen. It's not necessarily what will happen. The things that I know are going to happen, I don't have to worry about those. I sit there and worry. I have this fear of what is going to happen. And I'm distracted. Like every day. That's how I start. In a perfect environment, to be alone with God, I'm distracted. But the psalm here, here here's what it's, it's calling us to slow down. It's almost as if God knows how we're wired, Right? Like he, like he understands our hearts. Like he knows our distracted nature. And so he's calling us to slow down. He's calling us to pause three times in this passage. 
He's calling us to consider, maybe even to meditate on the word of God and what he would have us here. It's saying that there is something better for you in this moment than whatever trouble it is that you might find out there in the world. Whatever trouble you might find out there on your phone, whatever trouble you might find out there on the news, it's that God is meeting us in the space of distraction, in the space of trouble, and he's declaring the unsullied truth that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God's telling us that in, this, in the moments of doubt, like in the seasons of struggle, in the, in the day of hardship and trouble, God still remains. I was reading a devotion this week based on Psalm 46, and, and the author made the point. He, he said this. He said that to turn on the television or radio, and I would add to pick up your smartphone or to drive down a billboard-filled highway, is to be bombarded with the message that various products or services are the secret to achieving inner calm. If you can just get the right body, the right education, the right financial structure, the right entertainment system, then you'll be satisfied. So, so here's what it is. If you can, and I'm, I'm living proof that this isn't true, if you can cultivate the right environment... If you can insulate yourself from all the mess of the world, if you can somehow isolate yourself from all the mess of the world, from the hard things, from the slow things, from the boring things, if you can insulate yourself from, how about this? If you can insulate yourself from the messy people, because there's some people who think they're not the problem in their life. Maybe it's just everybody around you is the problem. So if I can get myself away from the messy people, I get myself away from the aggravating people, from the people who don't make your life better, then you'll find some sort of peace. It's the idea, here's what it is, the idea that the world, that the things of the world, that the treasures of the earth, the things that, that, that moth and rust can destroy and that thieves can break in and steal. It's, it's this idea that they're the sort of mystical key to, to contentment. That the things of the earth and even the people of the earth only exist to make your life better, to make your life easier, to make your life more comfortable. But what Psalm 46 would tell us is that even if you were, like even if you were to somehow get everything, everything that your heart desires in this world, it's still not going to remove you from trouble. It still won't satisfy every desire. And in the end, everything that feels permanent, everything can be moved into the heart of the sea. And the way it's described here is, 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 is picturing this giant earthquake, right? It's of something obviously beyond our control. Something greater than all our strength that we can muster. And this is one of the beautiful things about the word of God. It's that it doesn't ignore the realities of life on the ground. The psalm says this. It says that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in what? Trouble. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Over in Psalm 138, that's a psalm of David. He says this. He says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. In Psalm 37, he says, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in times of, you guessed it, trouble. Okay, so the Bible doesn't ignore the realities of life as we know it. God, God's not afraid to enter into your mess, all right? He's not. He's, he's not shaking in doubt. He's not crippled by fear. 
He sees it, he, he feels it, he knows it, and he acknowledges it. That's what he's doing right here in Psalm 46. He's acknowledging the trouble. Over, over in John 16, Jesus says to his disciples that in the world you will have tribulation, right? Now that's the sad word could also be translated as trouble. And in the parable of the sower, if you remember this story, the parable of the sower? A guy goes out and he's throwing seed all over the place and that's in Matthew 13, and, he, and Jesus compares the gospel to that seed. He compares the gospel of Jesus Christ to that seed falling to the ground. And in that parable, this is an interesting little thing, he mentions four different types of soils. You remember that? There's four different soils. And, and the implication here, so there's the path, which is like the street, and so you would go, well, that's probably not a smart place to to scatter seed. I mean, nothing's going to grow in there unless it's our parking lot. We could probably grow in our parking lot, but not, not, um, not, not normal parking lots or whatever. And so one day we'll pave that thing back or whatever, and you won't be able to grow, and, and you won't be able to grow anything there. And so that's one of them. And the other one is like the rocky ground. That wasn't in the notes. That just came out. I'm working through it, guys. I really am. Um, the other one's the rocky ground, right? So, that, so maybe there's enough dirt there for it to, to germinate or whatever and to, and to sprout. And, and so then the other one's among thorns. And so something's growing there already. And the, the, seed, the seed's there. And then there's the good soil, right? And that's just what it calls it, the good soil. There's the four different things. You get the path, the rocky ground, the thorns, and the good soil. The implication there. Uh, sort of underneath it all, is that the seed will endure some sort of hardship. Like regardless of what it is, it's coming into a place where there is a challenge involved. Like there is a, there's, a, there's an issue there that has to be dealt with. There's some sort of trouble. And so you see even the good news of the gospel, right? Even in that parable, we see that the good news of the gospel comes to us in trouble, it comes to us in the mess. It comes to us in the, in the, in the fire of life. And, and, and here's why. Because there's, because there's no other option. So even Jesus in his parables, he doesn't pretend like the world is perfect. He goes, no, it's a mess. It's a wreck. But that's where the gospel comes and meets us. And so God is, a, here's the language it uses. It says that God is a refuge. A refuge is a place of safety. But, but it's more, but, okay, so it's obviously more than that too, right? It's more than just a place of physical safety. It's not a panic room or whatever that you go into. It's, it's, a, it's a place of belonging. That's what, that's what a refuge is, a place of belonging. It's a place of welcome. That, that same word for refuge, it, it's used over in Psalm 104 when it says this. I'm about to quote to you the strangest verse you've ever heard quoted, and then I'm going to do everything I can to make it make sense. It, said, it uses that same word for refuge over in Psalm 104. It says, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. Anybody got that one on a coffee cup, right? Uh, no, I'm probably not, all right? So that's, that's a very weird verse taken out of context. And as far as I know, I've never encountered or seen a, a rock badger, which according to Wikipedia, all right, is basically just like an oversized squirrel. So that's what we're talking about. Just a really oversized squirrel. But, but, it, it, but its name says something about its nature, doesn't it? Like, why is it a rock badger? Why not just badger? It's a rock badger. This is what happens when you do word studies with the Bible, man. It takes you to some weird places. Anyway, you see, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badger because that's where it belongs. That God built it. 
that God formed it, that he, that he knitted it together in its rock badger mother's womb to, 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 to exist in that place. And so the rocks for me are terrifying. I got a friend who's a rock climber. He posts all these videos. I'm like, I just, I'm waiting for the day when I don't see a video and I'm going to call 911 and say, go look for him. I mean, that's genuinely what I think. I'm like, I'm a worst case scenario kind of guy. And um, no, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badger because that's where it belongs. And here's it is. It's the same for you and me. Not that we belong in the rocks, but that having the image of God in us, being formed with that in us, the imago day, the image of God, where are we meant to be? We're meant to be with God. And so what the psalm is saying, what God is saying, is that even if, the, even if the whole earth collapses, right? Even if everything falls apart around us, and even if the whole life that we have worked to cultivate for ourselves, like even if the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, God still remains. And so our refuge and strength still remains, even if it all falls apart. And to be with God. To be where we belong is to be safe. That's the refuge. Now look at verse 4. It says this. It's, it's a kind of a turn there. It says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. It says, The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Okay, so the first, ver- or the first stanza, let's call it a stanza, the first stanza of the psalm was a picture of, of collapse on like a global scale, right? It's mountains falling away and it's waters roaring and foaming. It's like scariest environment imaginable. It's this picture of the ferocity of life. Some of you feel that, right? There are times, there are seasons in life where we go, man, I just don't know. Like I don't, if tomorrow comes, I don't know that I have what it takes to do it. I don't know if I can muster the strength. And so there's this, there's this reality that we deal with that, that life comes with a ferocity that is scary. But there's a shift in this stanza. Beginning there in verse 4, the waters now, they're not roaring and foaming. They're under control. You see that? They're calm. It's not a raging river, but a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And so, and so it's not the trouble of nature that we have to deal with all the time or, or, just, or just the realities of life in a fractured world. This is more of an institutional struggle. It's the world around us. And so what happens? The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. There's this sense that the institutions of the earth genuinely believe that they can control their destiny. By the way, the church is not is not is not taken out of that. The institutions of the world, anytime you have more than about five people together, have you ever done this? You ever sat around with a group of people and talked for like an hour and go, well, guess we solved all the world's problems? And everybody laughs as if you're super creative, like you just came up with that? Yeah. Um, that, by the way, that's like every conversation I end up in. Every pastor thinks they're solving the world's problems all the time. Like, oh, just check that off the list. Um, move on to the next thing. Like, like, we genuinely think we can. Like these five minds sat here and ate rushes together. And now if the world would just listen to us, we could fix the whole problem. It's like, yeah, that's probably, probably not a safe bet. All right. Now there's this institutional problem that happens when you gather a bunch of people together. We start to think we know exactly what must and shall be done. And churches aren't 
Charges aren't amiss from that. They can amass a great army. They can pursue all the technological advancements. They can do all the things. But here's what they can't do. They can't control the earth. Like They want to. We want to. We want control. We, we, see, uh, we see it in the nations of the world as the wars, uh, in, in the wars that we fight. But, but we see it also in smaller contexts too. So let's not just go to like World War II when we think of nations raging. Like, we see this in school boards, don't we? I mean, I'm just going around our local community in the last year. We've seen it in school boards. We see it in churches. We see it in, in, uh, uh, we, we see it in all the little tiny... Again, you get five people together and you guarantee you got conflict. You get one soul together and you got a fight going on. So just... It's like for all of our best effort, it, it, when we try to control everything around us, when we try to manipulate everything around us, and we try to be in charge, here's what we end up doing. We end up looking pretty silly. We're like a toddler. And it's funny, yeah, you said we're a toddler as a church. We need to remember that. When we in our pride might be tempted to think, well, if everybody would do it the way we're doing it, it would just work out. That is fundamentally untrue. But we are silly enough sometimes to think that. We make our plans, we have our goals, but in the end, we still need God's help to get to not where we're going, but to where he's leading us. And this past week was a profound reminder for me of how little control we have. Uh, Friday was our daughter's uh, first day of class at USC because she didn't have class on Thursday for some reason. Like, what are we paying for? Anyway, and uh, <laughs> we were having our first football game that, uh, that Friday night, and then we were hosting our, our awesome, our, our RUF students are back at USC. Man, we were hosting them at the lake yesterday. And so if you paid any attention to the weather forecast for this week, you are going to be right on board with me, uh, because starting Monday, it didn't look good, all right? And so every morning, I was getting up, and immediately, first thing I would do before shower, before anything, I was checking my uh, my checking the forecast, and I realize I realized this too. That is my favorite app on the phone. Um, all the other ones I think are pretty destructive. If you could give me a dumb dumb phone instead of a smartphone and have a weather app, I think I'm on board. I think that, but I need that. What I'm at, I'm addicted to that thing. Anyway, uh, here here's what happened. When I was a kid, that didn't exist. Like some of y'all don't know, but that did, some of y'all are like, yeah, y'all don't know. I. That didn't used to be a thing. Like you just woke up like a maniac, looked out the window and like, I think it's going to be this today. And then went about your business in South Carolina where the weather can change, you know, like, like that. So we were just living on the edge all the time, right? Um, <laughs> I woke up this week every single morning and you, Laurie can attest to this very first. She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm watching the radar. Um, looking to see how many green things were coming into the screen and looking at the projected forecast. And I realized, uh, I realized that the first sermon that I heard preached every day was being preached by some meteorologist somewhere or some Doppler radar or whatever it is. Like the, the very first sermon that I heard every morning looking at the weather app on my phone was being preached to me by someone I don't know but it was reminding me that God is the one who is in control. Is there a more subtle way to hear that message than to see the weather app and know I can't do anything to change those lightning bolts? I can't do anything 
to control that. Like I can pay for the kids' classes. I can have the playbook ready for Friday night. I can have the drinks and the boats gassed up ready for Saturday. But I fundamentally cannot control the weather. That forecast, which didn't look good, was a sermon. The heavens were declaring, to go back to last week, the heavens were declaring and reminding me of my own weakness and my own obscurity. And my own powerlessness, that I can rage all I want. I can join in the course of the nations and rage against God, but at the end of the day, it won't change a thing. In contrast to that, look at the second part of verse 6. In contrast to me and my powerlessness to impact any of that, look at what it says. It says, the Lord utters his voice and the earth melts. I love that scene in Mark chapter 4. Um, where Jesus and his disciples are on the boat. You know this scene? And the big storm comes. And if you've ever been on the water when that happens, you, you know it happens in a process. So like the wind, you feel that first gust of wind, you feel a little temperature drop, and then if you, if you look out, the sky will get darker, and you can, if you've ever seen this, it's, really, it's, it's, it's both cool and it makes you feel really small. You can see the water working its way across, or you see the rain working its way across the water coming to you. You see the drops, right? So it's a pretty... A pretty cool thing to see. It makes you feel, makes you feel really small. And so the, the disciples are in that situation. They're out on this little boat, and, and they're on the water, and this is this storm. Here's what it says. It says that a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was filling up. That, that's the scene, right? That's what's happening. And then it says that Jesus, it adds this detail, that Jesus was in the stern asleep. Um, so Jesus is like in the back. He's had a big day. He's just happy as can be. And so what do they do? They wake him up. Why? Because they're in trouble. That's why. They, they wake him up because they're in trouble. These were professional fishermen. At least some of them were. Some of them were tax collectors. So they didn't know anything about being on the water, but whatever. Some of them knew what they were doing. They probably tried everything they could do to fix the situation on their own. They, they, they consulted, you know, they watched a YouTube video, how to control the boat in the storm or whatever, like, like we do, to try and figure out everything these days. And, and they couldn't do it. And so they were in trouble. They're a mess. They, and, and they're mad. They're like actually angry. You can kind of sense that. And like, how, why am I in this? You ever been in that position too? Why, God, you know, shaking your fist to the heavens? No, just me? Cool. Um, here's what they say. They're like, they're like, don't you care that we're perishing? You ever felt like that with God? Like, don't you care that I'm here dying right now? Don't you care that I'm being run over right now? Don't you care that the waves are breaking into the boat and I'm either going to crash on the rocks and die or end up like best case scenario is to drown peacefully? Like, God, don't you care? And so it says that he awoke. And here's, here's what it says. He awoke and rebuked the wind. And said to the sea, peace, be still. And the very next line says that the wind ceased and there was a great calm. It's a great story, right? Can you imagine what it would have been like to be there? Like, can you put yourself in that boat for just a second? Can you imagine the joy in that moment <laughs> where you realize you're going to make it. Like you thought you were going to drown. You thought you were a goner. I mean, I mean like the stakes were very high in this moment. 
You thought it was over. Like, you're not going to get another day with your kids. You're not going to get to tell them goodbye. You're not going to tell them you love them. Uh, you're not going to get to walk your uh, uh, daughter down the aisle. You're not going to get another uh, hug from your wife or your husband or whatever. You're, you're not going to get to see your son grow up to be the, a better man than you could ever hope to be. You're not going to get to do any of that. And there's, a, there's a lot at stake out there on the water that night. And just a moment happens, and Jesus wakes up and says, Peace, be still. And it did. Like the wind and the waves cooperated with him. I had this, like, I can't get my dog, who I feed every single day, to come back in the house so that I can... So I can leave. I can't. I'm standing there like a fool on the back porch, screaming her name. Come here, come here, come here. Do you want a treat? Doing all the things. Nope, nope. Like I can't get my dog to do what I want it to do. Jesus told the wind and the waves, "Peace, be still," and it did. And it did what it what he told them. It cannot be overstated. That if the storm had continued, if the waves and the wind had continued, like even if they had survived, that's the end of the Jesus story. We would have never heard about that story because Jesus put it all on the line right there. It's the, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he actually is the Lord so can you imagine being there? Like, like, what did they feel in that moment? Joy, gratitude, elation, they're high-fiving each other, you know, trying to hug Jesus. He's like, dude, I'm going back to sleep, whatever. Um, what did they feel in that moment? We, we have the answer. Mark 4.41 says, and they, you know this? And they were filled with great fear. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Sometimes we try in the church to soften this. Uh, our aversion to fear and our desire for like a nice, comfortable, very approachable, uh, soft Jesus, soft God. They, they push us to soften this. But, but the word for fear there in Mark 4 doesn't really allow us to do that. word for fear is the Greek word phobos. It's obviously where we get the idea of a phobia, right? So it, that's not just awe. That's not just like, oh. That's not just reverence. They were afraid. They were terrified. If this guy can tell the weather what to do, what then can he do to us? Proverbs 9.10 famously says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And even that, we try to soften that all the time. I've never heard that message preached without somebody trying to soften that. It's the same idea there. We speak only of awe and reverence, and those are true. Man, we should be reverent before our created, we, Creator. We absolutely should be in awe before the God who, who has spoken everything that exists into existence. But, but fear is more than that. It is. It's more than that. And, and we shouldn't be afraid of fear. 
Like we shouldn't be afraid of fear. Michael Horton has said that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom because it gives us the sanity to see the reality of our condition and our need for Christ. And then he says this, and I think this has really hit me over the last couple of months. He says, the fear of God is living with the grain of reality. It's being in the place that we belong. It's recognizing how small we are. It wasn't a curse that brought the Jesus and the disciples into the storm that day. It was the blessing of God that they might see God fully revealed in Christ. It's knowing that God could destroy us and that we deserve to be destroyed. This is the hard message, right? It's knowing that God could destroy us and that honestly, he should destroy us. But what does he do? He chooses to move in love and to move in grace and to move in mercy to save us. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. There is nothing that we can do, nothing that you can do, nothing that I can do to stop the will of God. Nothing. Nothing. There is no weapon. There is no tool. There is no argument. There's no wittiness. There's no anything that can, that can help us to overcome the true and living God. He utters his voice and what happens? The earth melts. You try to dig a hole. Not today, it's the Lord's day. Tomorrow. Go get you a shovel. Try to dig a hole more than six inches in the ground and tell me how much fun that is. We live in the red clay capital of the universe. If you're on campus, don't just try to dig a hole. They'll like get mad at you about that. He utters his voice and the earth melts. But look at the call in verse 10. What does he say? In the face of fear, in the face of seeing God fully revealed, the power of God fully revealed, what does he say? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still. Stop your fighting. Stop your striving. Be still and know that I am God. Like, is there any, any doubt as to why Jesus would use those same words when he was out there on the boat? We're told here in Psalm 46 to be still. What does Jesus tell the storm? Be still. His command is a declaration. As the boat was being swamped, as his disciples were in doubt, it was a declaration to them and it's a declaration to us today in our storms, in our little boats, that the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, do you know that? I mean, have you heard that? Can you receive that? Have you rested in that, that the Lord of hosts is with us? The God of Jacob is our fortress. He says it twice. Like he wants us to remember are y'all paying attention? The Lord, our God, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Do you hear that? God's going, can you hear that? The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That's his word to you today. That's his reminder to the covenant choir that is gathered here right now, to his redeemed new creation sons and daughters. This is his word to you. It's a word of love. It's a word of, it's a perfect love that casts out fear. Martin Luther closed out 
um, a mighty fortress is our God with these words. He said, that word above all heavenly power, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you don't treat us as our sins deserve, that you don't go running and hiding from us, that, that you are there in the boat, that you are there on the water, that you are present, that you are faithful, that you refuse. It's not that you just passively won't let us go. You refuse to let even one of your people go. Lord, help us to walk in that. A fear of the Lord that casts out all the other fears. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your son. Help us to walk in light of him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand now and let's...